Good morning, everybody. You are spry for having lost an hour. Well done. Um, pray everybody as well. We will be in Psalm 119, uh, verse 33, if that helps you narrow down the field. Um, Psalms is in almost the exact middle of the Bible. If you're new to uh, where things are in the Bible, Psalm 119, I want to read verses 33 through 41, and then we will jump down and I will read verse 47. Psalm 119, verse 33 says this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. And in your righteousness, give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. And then verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Let's pray. Father, we have been singing. We have now been reading. We have been talking to one another about the beauty and power and significance and transforming effect that your word has on individuals like myself and those of us in this room. And Father, it is our belief in your word that says anyone, anyone who trusts in you can be forgiven of sins, can be washed clean, can be made new, can be given hope and eternal life in Christ. But we know that only because of Your Word. And we are sustained in that only because of Your Word. And we are ignited to love when we don't feel like it because of Your Word. And so, oh God, I pray that You would show us Your glory through Your Word. That you would show us your power and your might through your word this morning. That you would awaken our hearts that might be not just physically sleepy, but spiritually sleepy. That God, you would give us a joy in you that is beyond compared to the joy that we experience in other things. For you are greater than anything we could enjoy. And so, Father, in these moments, transform us. To know Christ and to love Him through Your Word. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this year in 2015, we have set out as a church to say we want to increase over this year. We want to just grow in our joy in God. We want to grow in deepening our joy in God. That that's a command that God gives us. Rejoice in the Lord and we want to press into that. 
both in the high times and the great times and also in the low times, the Bible says that joy in him is possible. And so we began the year um, going through the book of Jonah, which we just finished. And in that book, we began to see that joy can come when we put away self-righteousness, when we put away this belief that we really think that we're good on our own merit rather than the only goodness we have is because of God's grace. And when we begin to see that God can transform any life and that he calls us to enjoy the transformation of even our enemies by his amazing grace. Our joy increases when we put away bitterness and we want the good of another. Jonah just kept pushing and pushing on the power of the good news of Jesus that can give joy to our hearts. Well, we also want to continue to flesh out that uh, theme of the joy that we can have in God by pursuing a series that we've entitled Solid. Solid, a sure word for a shaking faith. The concept here is that every single person, believer and unbeliever, at times has doubts, has questions. And many times the believer doesn't feel like the church is a safe place they can share those, that they kind of, once they're in the club, so to speak, you can't share the rawness of their difficulties or the doubts that might come up from time to time. But then there are those who don't know Jesus, have never really had a relationship with Jesus, or have just kind of gone through the motions over time, and they have doubts as well. They have questions as well. And we want to say with this series that our faith is a reasonable faith. It's a faith that invites us to study and invites us to know God. And there are answers to our questions. And although the the bottom line of everything is that we just must trust, we will not be able to figure out everything. However, our faith is a reasonable faith. And the church needs to be a context where we can bring our questions and our doubts and we can talk about these things together. And in so doing, as we get more sure in our faith, we then can help those who do not know Jesus to trust in Christ, to believe that what we are saying is a sure word because we are convicted about it. So not only is it meant to solidify just the sureness of God's word in our own heart as believers, but it's also meant to address those questions from those who don't know Jesus. And so we're going to answer five uh, crucial questions over the next five weeks. Today we're just going to look at one. But I'm going to list those five questions for you. Number one, which we will deal with today, is can we trust the Bible as God's infallible word? Or is it just a good story? Is it just talking about a good man? A good historical book, but doesn't have everything kind of accurately. Can we trust the Bible as God's infallible word? Number two... How can a good God send people to hell? We'll deal with that next week. Number three, is there really only one way to God or aren't multiple ways sufficient or accurate? Or aren't there multiple paths in order that we might get to God? Number four, how can, this is on Passover week, which we highlight the suffering of our Savior. How can a good God still allow suffering to exist? And then number five on Easter Sunday, how does Jesus' resurrection affect all these questions and ultimately 
all of my life. So these are the five things we'll be kind of going through. We'll be in the word thickly. And today you'll see kind of the taste of that as we will be all over the Bible using tons of scripture passages to kind of help us see the beauty of God. And today the beauty of God in his word. So we pray that you feel a sense of Yes, bring your questions. We want your emails. We want, your, we want the conversations around the room to be dealing with the issues that really plague us. The issues of what could be, we feel like a shaky faith. But today we're going to talk about we have a sure word. So the question we're asking today is, can we trust the Bible as God's infallible word? And there's two main parts and they're not rocket science. One is, can we believe it? And two, if so, why does it matter? Can we believe that the Bible is God's infallible word? And two, if so, why does it matter? So let's dive in, shall we? Number one, let's look at what we just read in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is an entire chapter on the word of God. There are three of these in the Psalm. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the book of the Psalms. And now we look at it and we just begin to see different words that are used to describe really the Old Testament. The law and the prophets and the writings. Different words that are used all meaning to take the reader to love and to see the benefit of the Bible. So when you hear... Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. You can insert the word, the scriptures. Give me understanding that I may keep your law, your commandments found in the scriptures. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. I delight in your commandments. I delight in the Bible, the scriptures. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart to your word and away from selfish gain. And turn my eyes away from worthless things. Where do you think that happens? From the word. Turn my eyes away from worthless things and give me life in your ways. Where does life come in your ways? It's from the word. Confirm to your servant your promise. There's another word. In the scriptures, the promises of God are found. That you may be feared. Turn away from... Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules, rules, commandments, testimonies. They're good. It's all speaking of the scriptures. And then verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Another way to describe verses of scripture. And in your righteousness, give me life. Now, what's interesting is the reason I ended on the verse that I did in verse 47 is for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Remarkable way to talk about commandments, isn't it? I love them. I love to be told what to do. Really? Not the world in which I live. That's not the heart that I wrestle with all the time. Mine. And yet the heart that gets close to God, the heart that is in the word of God, all of a sudden sees the word of God and the commandments of God as something that we love. There's a major difference between believers and unbelievers is that although believers struggle to love the word, ultimately they love Christ and they believe that it is 
God's word and they love God. And they love his word. But interestingly, how do we know anything that I've just said is true? Right? These are words on a page. How do you know it's true? There's a presupposition in me reading this that I believe these are God's words and that they're true. And therefore, if I read them, they should have impact on my life. How do you know they're true? Well, first of all, we need to understand that there are a few claims that the Bible makes about itself. Okay? few claims that the Bible makes about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. Speaking specifically of the Old Testament, but throughout the New Testament, calls the writings of Paul's letters actual Scripture. And talks about um, the early church fathers, talk about the Gospels as Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, 66 books. These are Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. These are God's very words, His very breath. All Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful. It has an effect. So it's not only from God, but it has an effect. Useful for teaching and rebuking and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It has an effect. So the Bible says about itself, it is from God and it has an effect on its hearers. You also see this in 2 Peter 1, 16-21. Where many will say that the Bible is myth or the Bible is theory. Here's what the Bible says about itself. Peter speaks this way. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We touched him. Just like John says in 1 John 1, which we just went through a few months before. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. This is speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration. When God descends and they see Him and they can't even look on His glory. He says that a voice came. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed That is, we have the Scriptures. The prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, that's where I said that the prophetic word above, the more sure prophetic word is Scripture. That means the Scriptures, the Bible, are more sure than even the word that Peter received when he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. This word is more sure, more fully confirmed. And he says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But where does the Bible come from? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God takes men carries them along, preserves 
the infallibility of God's word. This is what the Bible says about itself. Second Peter chapter three also says later on that Paul's very words are in accords with the other scriptures that Paul's writings accorded with the Old Testament itself. And then listen to what Jesus, who is the word, the the most pure, supreme manifestation of God's revelation to man. God has chosen to speak to us and he has chosen to speak to us through his son. The book of Hebrews says, and he speaks to us in its firmness. That comes with us in the word. So we have the spirit of Christ in us. We have his word. Listen to what Jesus says. John 6, 68 through 69. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus was speaking the Father's words and he had the words of eternal life. In the scriptures are the words of eternal life. John 8, 31 through 32. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In the scriptures is truth. And as you know the truth, it'll set you free. Eternal life. Words that set you free. John 8, 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Through words, first embodied in Jesus Christ, the perfect Word of God, now written down for us, the revelation of God to us in His Word, it is in these words that are completely without error, breathed out from God, useful for humanity, and in them are found eternal life, truth that sets free, truth. That promises anyone who trusts in Christ will never see death. This is what the Bible says about itself. But if you're thinking, you got your thinking caps on. I mean, this is a really dangerous sermon to do, right? On Daylight Savings Weekend. Okay, I get that. But we're going to go for it anyway. And if you got your thinking caps on, you're like, well, that's kind of circular, Well, surely if I were writing a myth, I would want to write embedded in it that what I'm saying is is true. If I were trying to pull one over humanity, I would write within the document that it's a true thing. But that doesn't necessarily make it true. Like I could write a document and say, I am God and all that I say is true, but that doesn't make it true, right? Well, so we have to go a little deeper. There are several objections that people begin to give to the Bible. One is that it's scientifically impossible. Two is that it's historically inaccurate. And three is that it is culturally regressive. I get these categories from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. And so we're going to just look at a few examples. This is not meant to be an exhaustive treatment that solves all of your problems. Okay? <laughs> no way, no how. But it is meant to just dip your toes into the water that says, Our faith, our faith 
is built upon a reasonable faith. And ultimately, although we will not be able to mentally solve everything, it is nonetheless a reasonable faith. So, the Bible is scientifically impossible. And many times what people um, who are arguing this, and you might think this yourself, and I, I want you to know, we, I want that kind of feedback. We need those kind of conversations. You don't need to be afraid to say that. But sometimes when people make that argument, they're saying that because they don't believe miracles can, are, are really true things. That they, they can't really happen. That these supernatural things, Jesus speaking and waves stopping. You look in the Bible and all of a sudden Moses runs down a staff and the waters part. Movies are even made, and usually when they're made, they, they pull away from the supernatural and they try to import some type of natural reasoning that can make that happen. One of the latest movies on the Exodus that has just come out tries to explain that it was just at the right time when the waters were kind of naturally receding that allowed then the Israelite people to kind of go across on dry land because it was... Just what happened. But what's really interesting is it never really answers the fact that there's a bunch of Egyptians bearing down upon them. And it happens at just that exact moment. Okay? And so what makes something happen at just an exact moment to preserve a people that then just a few little minutes afterwards, maybe even an hour afterwards, that these people, Egyptians who were chasing them, now they can't get across what the Israelites could get across. All of a sudden there are things that just don't seem to be able to kind of Check out with just natural reasoning that there might be something supernatural that is happening. Well, science many times will say that that's, that's, that's an impossibility. But we have to understand the nature of science. Science is a good thing, but it is meant to address, by definition, natural causes. It doesn't have a category for supernatural. It is... Developing its methods to address natural things. And so if you have a methodology that can only prove natural things. It's one thing to to insist that science has proven natural things. But it's a totally other thing to say that science has proven that there can't be any other kind of thing. Science has never proven that there can't be supernatural things because that's not its job. Its job is to prove natural things. So then it means if you have no experimental model, Tim Keller says, for testing this statement, no supernatural cause for any natural phenomenon as possible. That means this, you have just shifted from scientific reasoning to philosophical reasoning when you say that supernatural although i can't prove that it doesn't exist doesn't exist you move from science to philosophy you from science to presuppositions and so science isn't can't prove that supernatural can't exist you have no experiment for that and so then when we read the bible 
there's no reason to think that if there is a God who has created all things, that he can't do what he wants to when he wants to do it with nature. And honestly, the hope of humanity rests on his ability to invade natural man's heart and to change it and to change him from the inside out. That's the gospel. So we know it that doesn't answer all of our scientific potential objections, but to say that the Bible is scientifically impossible is is just not true. What about historically inaccurate? Let's kind of bring some things to bear. Well, the Bible is historically accurate in all that it says. It's interesting that before 1930, there was no historical proof for the city of Jericho. There were no digs, there were no documents, there was nothing that proved that Jericho existed. Well, in 1930, they did an archaeological dig on where they thought the city of Jericho was, and they dug down, and underneath the sand, they find the remains of a city. And they find this vase, and as they pick up the vase, you dust it off, and what does the vase say but the word Jericho? And then as they begin to excavate the land, they see that the, these walls that they were excavating did not fall inward, but they fell outward. Which in an invasion, walls would fall inward. But in the biblical story, when it says that they march around it seven times and they bang their trumpets and they holler and shout and the walls came tumbling down, you know the song? All of a sudden their findings begin to comport to what we see throughout the Bible. The same with David. There was no historical, archaeological proof for David other than in the Scriptures until 1993. Did that mean David didn't exist? No, he did exist. He only existed in the Bible. Was he a real person? Yes, he was, but nobody thought that that was the case until 1993 when they found proof of King David. And so just because there aren't certain archaeological findings or certain documents that can prove every single instance or every single story throughout the scriptures, what has been interesting is scientist after scientist those who have kind of come to faith in Jesus, they begin to, and archaeologists after archaeologists say, the, the evidence is overwhelming and only is building up the truth of the Bible. Now, what else is amazing about the Scriptures? That speaks to some of the Old Testament understandings of it being historically accurate, but what about the Gospels? For you might have remembered the massive wave of the Da Vinci Code. You remember that? This big cultural phenomenon of book and movie that kind of gripped everybody and talked about these new Gospels that came out. The Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of uh, James or these other Gospels that kind of came around in about 140 to 175 A.D. And they began to say all kinds of crazy things that did not 
conform with the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those quote-unquote Gospels also called into question the divinity of Jesus. That he wasn't even divine. He was a good teacher. But those things were kind of made up in order to rally a community around a certain teaching. But the New Testament doesn't allow. It's not written. Nor does history bear out that these Gospels are kind of flimsy in their historical accuracy. Because there are some things that we need to understand as to why we should be able to trust the Gospels. Both their content and their history. Number one is that it writes of eyewitnesses. 30 to 50 years after Jesus' life, we have the Gospels, our Gospels, the Gospels of the, the Scriptures coming into being. What does that mean? It means there were eyewitnesses present when those were written. You would not make up a fairy tale. You would not try to create your own religion when people were there to debunk it. You would wait till maybe 140 or 175 A.D. to write something once these people have gone. But these Gospels were written when eyewitnesses were present. Very interesting, Mark 15, 21 is one of these examples where the Gospel writers go out of their way to say this book is historical and you can check it with witnesses. Mark 15, 21 And they compelled a passerby. Speaking of when Jesus was carrying His cross and they called on a man to carry it for Him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And there's no need to put this next phrase in there. But Richard Bauckham says it's kind of like a footnote. This is how they would footnote. It's like, go talk to this guy about what I'm saying. Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. To carry his cross. It's like, go talk to this guy. He's a, he's a real live person that you can talk to. Just like you would use a reference in, in a reference paper. You also see it in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul writes and he says about the, the resurrection. He says, and Christ was raised and made known to the apostles. And also made known to over 500 witnesses. Among whom many are still here. Some have died, but many are still here. You would not write these things if you were trying to create something with witnesses still present. Instead, it was written with witnesses present to confirm its historicity and to confirm its content and truth. So Luke will start out his gospel... Writing this way. His whole aim in writing the Gospel of Luke was to write a history verified by witnesses. You wouldn't go through that kind of detail. And so it says in Luke 1, 1 through 4, Inasmuch as may have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. Among us, we're here, we've seen these kind of things. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why would I write this? And this is in part where we get the title of the entire sermon series for these next five weeks. That you may have certainty 
concerning the things that you have been taught. Church, you need certainty that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. And that this book that you hold in your hands is the Word of God to be trusted and to be loving the content of the Scriptures. Surety comes from the Word. You just cannot make up wholesale fabrications when those witnesses are right there with you. The Bible in all of its parts are historically accurate. Now what's interesting is that you also have incredible unity within the Scriptures. The Bible was written over 1,500 years from over 40 different authors in three different languages from many different continents. And when you read the Scripture, you have a unified message. A unified message. Over 300 prophecies 60 unique, 60 plus unique prophecies, but over 300 prophetic statements throughout the Old Testament alone, written by many different people, all confirmed in the person of Jesus Christ. And I've stated this before, but Lee Strobel makes this comment just for eight to come true. The likelihood of that is one in 100 million billion. It happened. Jesus Christ fulfilled 60 plus. And the word of God preserves for us 300 plus. Why would you put so many in there? If this were just made up from man. Put one or two. And then, yeah. Sure, somebody can kind of fulfill those. It is beyond a shadow of a doubt. That what we have for us is the word of God. Because of its incredible unity. Because of its historical accuracy. Because it is the word of God. Many, many questions probably can still remain. But what we know is that we have preserved for us. Philippians, the book of Philippians is a really early document. Only 20 years after Jesus' death. And what we see there is they are worshiping Jesus As divine. They are worshiping him as God. Confirming. That this one who was to come. The Messiah would be a wonderful counselor. He would be almighty God. He would be the everlasting father. And the prince of peace. This is who we serve. It is not just a good man. Who did some pretty cool things. That maybe kind of. Bent a little bit of natural thinking. But no. This was God himself. And everything that he taught was the word of God. Because he himself embodied God's revelation to us. He was the perfect revelation of God to us. But you might say, and this is a a fairly new one. But before people would say, well, it doesn't comport with science or it's historically inaccurate. But some now will just say, it's just culturally out of date. Right? It's views on women. It's views on sexuality. Out of date. Doesn't apply. 
culturally regressive. But it's just not accurate according to that day. The scriptures, even in 1 Timothy 2, it actually commands a woman to learn, which wasn't something you would do in that culture. Commands a woman to learn. They are encouraged in 1 Corinthians 11 to pray and to prophesy in public, in the corporate gatherings. And it's interesting, in God's divine plan, it was women who were the first on the scene to the resurrection. It was the women who were the ones that were going to give testimony to the apostles that Jesus Christ was alive. You wouldn't write that in the scriptures in those days. Just because it talks about submission doesn't mean it's culturally regressive. It talks about submission from us to the government. It talks about submission in the scriptures of, yes, husband and wife, but of, yes, of the church to its leaders. But let's just make sure we're crystal clear. The Bible talks about submission of Jesus, the son to the father. And there is no inequality there. Full equality. Equal in value. Different in role. The Bible's not culturally aggressive. It's countercultural. But we can't throw it away because it doesn't comport with the thinking of some today. What about others? Some will just say the Bible narrows sexuality way too narrow that it should be only preserved for marriage? No way. Sow your wild oats. Try things out. But that doesn't make it culturally regressive. Especially when you talk to those where that relationship doesn't work out. And you've got such a, not just, an, not just a bond of friends, but you have a deep emotional bond that the scriptures speak to. That happens because you've been united physically. The Bible speaks to these things. What about homosexuality? Did a whole sermon on it, but in the Bible, it's not seen as an identity. It's seen as a choice. But it's not seen as a a label, but it's seen as a lifestyle that's not pleasing to God. But it's also seen as a story of some of those in the church itself in 1 Corinthians 6. Put alongside those who are greedy and adulterous. All kinds of struggles. And what the scriptures say is that the church is actually characterized by love for all of our different facets of brokenness. Because everybody is broken. It's called sin. And it's just expressed in multiple ways. So it is a culture of love For the broken, including those who struggle with same-sex attraction. But that doesn't mean that those desires should be lived out. So we walk alongside one another, struggling for faith. And fighting to live a life together, in all of our brokenness, to walk in God's ways. The Bible is actually very culturally relevant. But just because it doesn't agree with culture, doesn't mean that it's culturally regressive. Friends, there are certain things that we need to understand. 
that science and just mere historical books, entertainment or food or relationships, they cannot deal with what the Bible alone can deal with. And that is this, guilt and shame. They can't deal with how to forgive and how to have lasting hope, ultimately eternal life. The Bible speaks to something that is the cry of every human heart. That it is supernatural. And so the Bible calls us in and of itself to trust it as the Word of God. And our objections that we could bring from multiple different facets of life do not disprove the Bible's own claim of itself. But you know, there's something else. That's all objective. There's something else that many of you could stand up and say. And that's partially why we did that time of talking about the effect of God's word. Is that there's not only an objective, but there's a subjective nature to the Bible. I have a story to tell, friends, about what the Bible did in my life. Somebody shared the Bible with me, my parents. Heard it from those in a youth group or heard it from a pastor. And my life was changed because the Word of God came and bore down upon a hard heart. And my heart was turned upside down. I have a story to tell of the Bible's effectiveness. I have a story to tell that when I sit down and read the Bible, there are certain things happen as I read the Bible. Not 100%. There are many times that it's just dry. It seems like words on a page, right? But if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you not only have the stories of dryness, but you have the stories of where the water is pouring over the soul. Where you feel encouraged, where you're convicted over sin. Because God is protecting you from destroying your life. When you are stirred to love someone. When you are struck that you need to be forgiving. And when at the core of the gospel, you realize that you cannot save yourself, but Christ alone can save you. All of that is supernatural, and it's the Spirit of God working in His Word. So you not only have objective things that say, the Bible is true, the Bible is true. We have a story to tell that says the Bible is the Word of God. This is my experience It's a reality that God is at work through His Word. Some of you, you might not even question the accuracy of God's Word. And this whole part might have been like, oh, that's neat information. But I don't question the accuracy of God's Word. So then I ask another question. Do you question the importance or the power of God's Word? Because I think many times our practice says that we do. And that leads us to just the application. And that is, if so, if the Bible is God's word, as it says it is, why does that matter? Well, the first thing is that this means that it is God's word and therefore living words. Not just stale words. Like if I were to write a book, those would be kind of stale words. They might encourage you they might excite you they might entertain you 
but they would not be living words. These are God himself making himself known to us on the pages of Scripture. It is a sure word. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing to the heart both joint and marrow. It gets down deep. It cuts in ways that no other thing can cut. And so ultimately, if you're sharing your faith, or if you're encouraging someone who doesn't follow or trust in Jesus, I do not believe that you will just win them over by solving their mental arguments. A heart is won over, the Bible says in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, not the word of Sean. Not just good logical thinking. It's the word of Jesus. It's when the Bible is laid before them. And so many times the best thing you can do is not just solve their intellectual concerns, but get them reading the Bible. For there is a self-authentication that the Bible brings out in and of itself. It screams, this is different. It awakens a dead heart. It's a living and active word. It is sure and true. And so that's why it matters. It's living. It's living. And therefore, these are God's words. This is how God is revealing himself to us. The second concept is this. That then that means God's word is powerful enough to change and convert and to reorient our lives. These are God's words and that it matters then because it can change everything. It can change everything. I just spoke about how it can take one in darkness and bring them to light. It can take a hard heart and it can make it soft. It can take no desires and give desires. This is what the Spirit of God does through His Word. But it also, when you read it, it flips your thinking upside down. It makes you topsy-turvy. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, right? That when the gospel is preached, that is the wisdom of God is given, the world will look on that and say, that's foolishness. Putting your hope on a crucified Savior? But yes, He rose from the dead three days later. And all my hope is in Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't compute. Our thinking The more we're in the word, it begins to be more like the mind of Christ and our thinking is flipped upside down. There's no way on your own you get Luke 9, 23 and 24 without the Bible. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life must lose it for my sake. Really? Go intentionally, lose your life for the love of Christ and the love of others. That's how you'll save it. It doesn't make sense. It's because it's God's economy. It's more blessed to give than receive. In a world that says, get as much as you can. Climb as high as you can. doesn't make sense 
when you read Isaiah 58, 7 through 8, and it says, You sad, depressed, downcast person, you know how God promises to awaken you? It is when you get close to me and then you pour out your life for others. It talks about feeding the hungry, it talks about drawing near to the oppressed, and then it says, It's then when light breaks forth like the dawn. Most counsel is, no, you're valuable. Most counsel is, your life is really, really hard. Fix yourself and then you can think about others. It's the mantra of the airplane, right? Please put on your mask before helping others. I get that. I understand the reason for it, but it filters throughout society. Help yourself, then you can help others. The Bible says, Get near to God in all of your weakness and pour your life out for others and then light breaks forth in the darkness. It's upside down. Surrendering your life as a means to joy? Friends, we are bombarded by the opposite message. We need the Word of God. And so the Word of God also promises to not only initially change us, but continually to conform us to Christ. So that Psalm 119 says, The word have I hidden, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's verse 11. Hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against God. I begin and end with Psalm 119. Do you know something? In the Psalms, Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 19, and Psalm chapter 119 are all about the word. Do you know what follows each one of those psalms about the word? A psalm on Jesus. A psalm on the Messiah. You know why? We don't read the Bible because we worship the Bible. We read the Bible because the Bible ignites and fuels and sustains a love for our Savior. We love our Savior. We love our Savior. And where are we going to know our Savior and His ways and have His mind? It is in the Word of God. So I encourage you. If you have no clue where to read this week, read Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Read there and just know every word of God proves true. And He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. That's the first verse we ever memorized as a church at Treasuring Christ Church 10 years ago. Every word of God proves true. And He is a shield to anyone who takes refuge in Him. Let's pray.